0: Hello and welcome to The Stakes. I'm Julian Ross, Deputy News and Politics Editor at MTV News, and I'm hiding out in our air-conditioned studio in New York City because it is 100 degrees outside this Friday and all our brains have melted accordingly. Coming up this week on the show, Jane Coaston speaks with Betty O'Kino, one of the legendary black gymnasts who paved the way for Simone Biles. Anna Marie Cox talks to a former neo-Nazi on leaving hate groups. And our poet-in-residence, Marcus Ellsworth, speaks to the power of pronouns and self-determination. But first, last week, another video of a police officer using force against a black citizen surfaced online. The surveillance video showed Houston resident Ealdrika White being stopped by a Metropolitan Transit Authority cop in a mall parking lot. The video is silent, but it was released along with the audio from a 911 call White herself made after she was stopped.
1: And I would like another officer to come out here. My heart is racing. I'm really afraid.
0: A few minutes later, the transit officer grabs White by the arm.
1: This man is—he is about to twist my. This man is oh. twisting my arm. Oh my God! This man is about to tase me. Please, stop. can you
2: stop? What's the word?
1: This
0: is harassment. The stop happened back in March, but White's lawyers told us that the reason she decided to come out with the video in August was that—well, will it Zachary Fertita tell you himself?
2: Some of the mainstream media had already gotten a hold of the YouTube video, and they were going to release that. I thought it would be better to give the surveillance video because it shows more accurately uh, what happened with the traffic stop and arrest.
0: Our senior national correspondent, Jamil Smith, spoke with White about what happened and how it's affected her life.
3: Druka, thanks for joining us on The Stakes. I wanted to ask you first, can you just tell us your name, your age, and what you do for a living?
1: My name is Eldrico White. I am an LPA, an assistant to a psychologist. Um, and as an LPA, I'm licensed in the state of Texas to provide counseling and psychological testing. So as a clinician or a therapist, I diagnose people with mental health disorders.
3: The reason we're speaking now is because on March 31st of this year, you were pulled over by a police officer in Houston in a mall parking lot. And then your attorneys released video captured by a security camera of that stop. To the newspaper, the Houston Chronicle, which published it last week, along with the 911 call that you made after being stopped. Now, first of all, Drika, why were you stopped at all by that police officer?
1: The police officer stated that he stopped me because I crossed over a double white line. Um, And Jamil, there's no double white line out there at the location I was stopped at.
3: So you're pulled over. What then made you decide to call 911? What about the officer made you feel unsafe?
1: Well, he got out of the car with handcuffs drawn out, open. He threatened to tase me, and he also threatened to, arra- um, to arrest me. And as a clinician, I mean, I study people for a living, so I'm paying attention to his body language, how he's speaking to me. His pupils were dilated. So I was like, no, this is not going to end up good. And after being threatened to be tased and arrested, I then go back. Um, I reach for my phone and I call nine one one. Everyone is calm. Um, I'm calm. He's calm. Um, he's yelling to say, "Hang up the phone. Hang up the phone. Hang up the phone." He then turns around. He says something into his walkie talkie. I didn't. Mm-hmm. I couldn't make out what he was saying because I was trying to give the dispatcher my location. Um, and then that's when you see him attack me. When I say this man has threatened to tase me, um, and you see him forcefully push me onto the car and um, arrest me, then
3: right—it—it's it, hard to hear anything he says in the uh, in the video through your phone call. But there was a certain moment where he just seemed to either you know have his patience exhausted, or there's something you said that you know set him off. And he just tries to, you know, roughly arrest you. What then happens once you go out of camera view? Um, The struggle kind of continues and you you don't really see what happens to you too.
1: He literally tries to break my arm. Like um, Mm -hmm. he literally takes my right arm forcibly um, up back and forth, back and forth. He pulls my my hair. There's another video on my YouTube page um, of the the view that you can't see from the surveillance camera that you guys need to watch. A little boy, um, I think, I believe he's 11 now. um, A Hispanic boy recorded the entire um, incident once he attacked me. And you see him thrusting my arm in in the air back and forth. You see him pulling my hair. You hear him yelling, get down, face down on the ground, hang up the phone. And then I told the dispatcher, I have to go now, ma'am. And I said, please send someone here. And I hang up the phone. I let him know that I hung the phone up and I got down face down on the ground. And then in the video, you hear them saying, she's just a child. She's just a child. Why, Why are you tasing her? And he didn't tase me, but he tased the ground near me. And then when he picked me up, he laughed in my face.
3: Now, Tariqa, it's maybe it's just a meme going around Twitter, but it struck me as, as significant. And I'm wondering, how can you be arrested for the charge of resisting arrest and nothing else? Because what were you being arrested for in the first place? That, what did he threaten you with that you allegedly resisted?
1: Um, When the other officers arrived, they huddled up in a circle to figure out what to arrest me with. I was sitting inside of the car. The door was still open, so I could hear all of the conversation, um, all of the back and forth, all of the deliberation, if you will, um, about what they could possibly arrest me with. Um, I overheard his sergeant, an African-American female, telling him, no, we can't charge her with that one. What's the other one?
3: Wow. You spent how how long in jail?
1: I spent two days in jail.
3: Where does your case stand right now? I know that the police department has cleared the officer of any wrongdoing, even after seeing that video.
1: It's it's still pending, Jamil. We haven't received any further word um, about anything. It's still pending.
3: I mean, what struck me about your case when I read about it first was the fact that you literally were calling for more police. You know, there's a narrative, I feel like, when people talk about police reform or or black liberation, that, you know, they're anti-police, that they don't want any police in in cities. And and you literally were calling for another cop to help make you feel safe. Can you tell me about what your, you know, your previous conceptions about the police leading up to this, given everything that's happened in the last few years in your life? How did you view the police coming into this?
1: My mom is a correctional officer, so I have or had, I had the utmost respect for um, police officers, even growing up for just authority as a whole. Um, But to be violated as I was, to be assaulted by a man, to now have my name up for discussion to say that I'm ghetto because my mother named me Earl Drica. Someone needs to answer to this.
3: How are the people in your life reacting to what happened to you?
1: I think people are very appalled, Um, they know what I stand for, Um, I'm a very empathetic person so whenever I see somebody treated wrongly I try to put myself in their shoes Um, and that's why I had to go back home last Wednesday after we sat down with Houston Chronicle and ABC aired and Univision aired because it was so much pressure I felt on me to quote unquote look perfect or look distraught, or um, be human. I have so much love and support around me. It's almost like it never happened, but I have to face it every day. Every day I wake up, I have to be aware that this actually happened to you. It's okay, you're alive, be grateful. But now, what are you going to do about this? You cannot go about life the same. And that is what I keep telling myself. Um, It happened, it's okay. But something has to change, and if you're the change agent, be the change agent. Stand up. Don't be afraid. Don't hold back. But people want me to feel um, ashamed. Some people want me to feel guilty for getting out of the car. It's not a crime to get out of your car. Um, it, it's not. It's not a crime. If it is, please write it in, in the books. But my family is afraid that people may retaliate. Because they've read the comments. They don't want me to go back to my apartment. They don't want me to drive the same car that I drive. So, my, mm. I mean, my close friends and family, they're very concerned about me.
3: Trigga, did you fear for your life?
1: I did. And do you now? I Even now. Even now. Um, on my way to the radio station, I passed by what appeared to be a police gathering. It wasn't at a police station, but it was a police gathering. And... A police car was trailing me. And my initial thought was, I wonder if he knows who I am. And then my second thought was, I wonder if he knew who I was, would he stop me?
3: We're speaking on August 9th on the two year anniversary of Michael Brown's shooting death in Ferguson, Missouri. Do you see what happened to you within the context of all these incidents that we've seen on video? all these incidents of black motorists or black citizens encountering police and having those encounters turn turn violent?
1: I do. I do. Um, there's definitely a direct parallel between what happened to Mike Brown and myself. Although I lived um, to tell his story and so many others, and um, also mine, I believe that African-American people are now Subject to maltreatment and injustice because as a female, um, what could I have possibly done to him? I was unarmed in a public place, half of his body weight, um, not threatening at all. So what could I have possibly done to harm him? It, it, It baffles me almost. And they use that one liner, I was afraid for my life. But do you ever consider the victim in that circumstance to say, I wonder how she feels? She was so scared that she thought to call 911. So many times police officers are told, you do what you have to do to make it home to your family. But what about my family? What about my mom? What about my brothers? I want to make it home to my, what about my career? I worked so hard and finally finally I'm practicing. And my clinical director, she's here, and she knows all that I've gone through to to be here as an l p a and to have that stripped i mean i i i don't know i don't know if you've ever worked hard for something in your life and you've mm-hmm. gotten right right there to the finish line right i'm I'm a track athlete as well I ran for Southern University. But it's almost like someone hands you the baton, right? And you're running around the track. And right before you're winning the race and right before you cross, you slip and fall or somebody trips you. Allison Felix, it happened to her in the Olympics. It's such a a painful feeling, almost as if you shouldn't have even run to begin with, right? Right. Because why fall right before You achieve something that you've never accomplished before. And that's how I feel right now. It's August. I should be enrolled for a Ph.D. program right now. And I'm not
3: because this has derailed you.
1: Right. Right. So what what how am I how am I supposed to be now? My clients know what's going on. What what am I supposed to tell them? I have brothers in school who are being confronted now. How should they behave in school? I don't want my, my little brothers getting in trouble in school to support me or to defend me. I'm missing work. I received a notice to vacate my apartment. It, I mean, what, what am I supposed to do now?
3: Jericho, I want to ask you um, just to, as a matter of getting it on the record. Do you in any way feel that your race, your gender, your appearance played a factor in the way that you were treated by that officer.
1: Of course I do. And anyone who knows me, they know that I'm, I'm a glamorous, you know, female. I love to dress up. I love um, hair makeup. I'm a, I'm a hairstylist as well as a beauty consultant. And I thought to myself, I said, Drica, why did you dress down that day? Um, had you been more beautiful or more appealing? Had you want to dress in heels Maybe he wouldn't have done that to you. And I had long braids.
3: But this is not stuff you should be worried about, though. Like, this is, is, this is what gets, that's what just kills me. It's like, this is not something that you should be having to worry about as a woman, as a black person, period. Like, you shouldn't have to be worrying about this kind of stuff.
1: And, and you're right. And you're right, Jamil. But this is, these are things that we face as black women every day. And I purposely do not wear braids anymore. I have a very conservative look now because I've done, I feel, everything that my mom told me to do. I went to school, I went to the school that she wanted me to do. go to. I ran track, scholarship, she didn't have to pay anything. I went to graduate school, got my clinical license, had my own business, opened a salon, and I still find myself at the mercy of an just a moral person, not even officer, just a moral person. So what what am I to do if I can't wear my hair how I want, if I can't dress how how I want? What am I to do if I know as a black woman I'm going to be profiled?
3: Draco, what do you do to to keep your head up?
1: You know, I listen to music. I love music. I love Drake. <laughs> I mean, I do. It's almost like he's there with me. Not to be, you know, pervert or anything, but it's like he comforts me. Like, I don't know. I don't I don't know. But whenever I get sad, I, I play music. Um, I love reggae, too. So I dance every morning I get up. I force myself to get up, be grateful, dance. I will dance for 30 minutes. I'm late sometimes to work because I'm just shaking off all the stress.
3: Jerika, I just have one more question
1: when you were driving that day
3: what were you going to be doing what were you going to be doing that day i got interrupted by that stop
1: honestly i was on my way to a business meeting to open my salon yeah and and that's why i said that this is it this experience is so painful because here i am you know striving um um, just striving in life, trying to do what's right, trying to be someone important to contribute to the world, to help society, um, and to once again have a dream stripped away. It hurts. It hurts so
0: bad. Eildarika White is a licensed psychological associate. She spoke with our senior national correspondent, Jamil Smith. Life After Hate is a group of former white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and extreme right activists who help people leave those kinds of hate groups. They use social media to reach out to racist people and offer them counseling and help out of the movement.
4: Gays are an abomination.
5: All Muslims are terrorists. A race war is coming. Don't be deceived by these lies like we were. It's not too late to get out. No judgment. Just help there is life after hate.
0: Christian Picciolini co-founded Life After Hate 20 years after he himself left the American racist skinhead movement that he helped build as a teenager. MTV News' Anna Marie Cox called Christian to talk about his work. Tell me about Exit USA, what it is.
5: So, Exit USA is a program of a nonprofit that I co-founded in two thousand and nine called Life after Hate. Uh, and essentially, Life after Hate is an organization run by former extremists who've left that life many years ago and are now dedicated to helping other people leave hate groups and and violent extremist ideologies. We launched Exit USA as a program of Life after Hate last year uh it's uh, a confidential website where anyone can reach out to us if they feel stuck in a hate group or with a hateful ideology uh, and uh, they can ask for our help and we provide a pretty unique perspective because we were once members so we understand the motivations of why people get in uh, but more importantly we understand the motivations of why people leave these hate groups so it, it, it's been our mission to really try and provide an alternative path and, an, uh, and a counter-narrative to people uh, who may have an ideology that's based in hatred or fear or ignorance, uh, just like we were uh, 20 years ago.
6: Correct me if I'm wrong, but the the main kind of ideology you're focusing on, would that be like white supremacy in America?
5: We focus mainly on the extreme uh, far-right, right. so that would include white supremacists, white nationalists, you know, Nazis, skinheads, uh, KKK, because that's, uh, that's our background.
6: You took part in a study that looked at your effective ways for you to de-radicalize, and you were studied next to groups that c- target radical uh, Islamists. What were the similarities?
5: Uh, typically, young people are targeted who are at risk, who are vulnerable and marginalized, and they're promised this idea of paradise, uh, and it doesn't matter if that paradise is a white homeland or, uh, you know, an Islamic state uh, under Sharia law and you know we found that most young people who join these organizations do so because uh they really just want a family they may come from a background of trauma of abuse uh of neglect uh and uh, they're looking for a new family to belong to
6: and so if the same techniques to recruit radicals work for either people on the far right or, or radical islamic um, would be jihadists Uh, do the same techniques to de-radicalize work?
5: I I think that there are a lot of crossovers. I think that there are absolutely a lot uh, uh, that's based in providing opportunity because people tend to gravitate towards these organizations or ideologies because there's a void in their life Mm -hmm. because, let's face it, happy people don't plant bombs or wear suicide vests or walk into a church in South Carolina and murder nine people.
6: So you're basic argument has to do with taking these people um, who have gone down the path of, of radicalism no matter what it is and trying to uh, the simple word would be happy trying to make them happy trying to give them some other reasons to find joy in their life which sounds a little pollyannish to me like it almost sounds like that wouldn't work
5: yeah and and happy may be the wrong word but i think satisfied with their life stability uh, you know, a job, uh, not feeling marginalized or on the fringes of society. Um, there are a lot of uh, programs that we do through Exit USA when we work with people who reach out to us, uh, is, you know, we've, we often find that there's trauma in their mm-hmm. background, so we, you know, we introduce them to mental health uh, practitioners to go through counseling. Uh, we offer them job training if, if a job is an obstacle for them. Uh, sometimes it's educational services and sometimes it's something like tattoo removal that stopped them from, from getting a job.
6: So what's also interesting to me is what I'm not hearing from you, which is that uh, you're not talking about presenting these people with facts or presenting them with uh, an argument against their ideology.
5: Yeah, I mean, I don't think that battling ideologies with anybody, regardless of, of, you know, if we're talking about politics, or if we're talking about extremist ideologies, is really beneficial. I think it just emboldens both sides and makes them angrier, because when people are in these movements, they're essentially in a bubble, Mm -hmm. uh, and and they don't interact with anybody outside of the small, very tight social circle. So when they're exposed, and many people who end up joining these hate groups have never met the objects of their hate, they've Mm -hmm. never met Muslims, they've never met or dialogued with african-americans or with uh, lgbtq community people so you know to to immerse them into those communities is to try and bring some empathy into their lives and to humanize the objects of their hate that's what changed me I received empathy and compassion from people that I least deserved it from when I least deserved it and that's what allowed me to leave
6: so I have to tell you, as someone, I'm I'm personally in recovery in a 12-step program, and it struck me, like listening to you now and reading about the study, that there's like some really familiar language and some familiar kinds of thinking in what you're doing and in what 12-step programs do. Uh, do you think there's it's almost like people get addicted to hate and then need to be helped out in sort of similar ways?
5: yeah i think that there are similarities i don't know if it's addicted to hate i think it's addicted to power or Mm -hmm. perceived power and respect for me you know having been recruited at 14 years old in 1987 and leaving in 1995 when i was 22 and then spending the last 20 years to try and counter the effects that i made as part of america's first neo-nazi skinhead gang you know it's important to know that i didn't you know when I went in, I wasn't racist I came from a, a a pretty good family i you know a lower middle class family who was blue collar and was working and there was a lot of love. My parents were Italian immigrants who came to this country in the mid sixties and they were often the victims of prejudice so racism wasn't a foundation of of my youth uh, I got into it because I was accepted because I had been bullied for so many years because you know I was short or because I had a big nose or for whatever reason um when I was recruited I was given the promise that that wouldn't happen anymore and in fact I was not bullied anymore and uh, that's that's what kept me in. Mm -hmm. So when I left there were no support groups which is one of the reasons why I co-founded Life After Hate in 2009 was to be that support group for people who wanted to leave.
6: Sometimes when we talk about addiction people are like yeah I don't know any addicts you know like I don't I don't know anybody addicted to heroin I don't know anybody who's shooting up in their neck um, but the thing is they probably do it's just we think about the extreme version of this all the time in order to the only thing that gets our attention is the extreme version and so i'm sort of thinking about how someone might say well i don't know any white supremacists i don't know anybody who thinks that way um, but maybe they do like is it is the is there a, like a less extreme expression of this ideology that's that's also something we should be thinking about
5: you know what scary to me right now in our current political climate is that things I'm hearing from Donald Trump uh, are essentially the same things that we said 25, 30 years ago. Uh, And uh, a concerted effort back in the 70s and 80s from our movement was to mainstream Our ideology was to tone it down so people were taught to go out in London into the mainstream with their ideology and to tone it down and not use things like the n-word or to say that Jews run the media but to say that it is a liberal media or Mm. uh, you know not not to call uh, people derogatory names but to call them immigrants so I I was at uh, Donald Trump's Chicago Uh, rally during the primaries, the one that was canceled because Mm -hmm. of the protests. And I actually was inside because I went as a silent protester and I wanted to experience the situation. And I can tell you firsthand that I heard nastier things come out of people's mouths, more vile, racist things come out of people that look like you and me and your doctor and your lawyer that I heard, that I heard at any Klan rally or any neo-Nazi rally or skinhead rally I've been to and I've been to dozens of them and that to me is the scariest thing because this concept has now infected the mainstream uh and it's a scary concept. And, you know, and I speak from experience because everything that is happening right now in politics is what we dreamt of when I was a part of the movement. We wanted a candidate who spoke our language, who put our platform out there in a way that would attract more Americans under this banner, under this very veiled banner of, of white supremacy.
6: With that in mind, I mean, you heard what everyone else heard uh, earlier this week when Trump said that Second Amendment people might have a solution Mm -hmm. to um, Hillary Clinton's uh, appointments of judges. Tell me what you thought of that.
5: (laughs) That to me was, uh, you know, a very clear indication of of how from one of the highest seats in power right now, you know, running as president of the United States, he's encouraging people on the right, essentially sovereign citizen organizations, militia groups, anti-Islamic quote-unquote, patriot groups, to take violence into their own hands and eliminate the enemy.
6: But I want to just be very clear, because I think, maybe just to satisfy my own curiosity, like, there is no other way that a person involved in these extremist groups would have heard that comment from Trump, right? Like, that is an unambiguous comment from him.
5: I would agree. I would agree. I can tell you, when I was in the movement, there were many people that I knew that would have acted on, on that kind of a, a message.
6: So what also sounds really scary to me about the situation that we're in and that you described so well um, is that if someone's involved in an extremist group, there is something, there, there is a, a, a thing to talk to them about, right? Like there's a defined ideology, defined group to say, you're a part of this. I'm a part, you know, come join me in this other way of thinking. But if it's just normalized, if this kind of dialogue and rhetoric and in policy is just how we speak about things, it's almost impossible to say you're a part of a hate group. Here's an alternative, because they're just they're just there. They're not, It's not a hate group. It's you know
5: right. Trump
6: rally. Yeah.
5: Right. It, it, it's not, and then it's not about the hate groups anymore. It's really about a hate society and a hate culture. Um, and you know, listen, this is nothing new to our country. I, you know, I believe our our the fabric of, of how our nation was started was rooted in in white supremacist values, and we still see, you know, many many traces of that still happening today with, you know, incarceration rates and and, and violence uh, against black teenagers. So I mean, it really isn't, you know, an idea of a hate group as it is so much a, of a hate culture. Uh, and you know, I, you know, I, I say this all the time, and I really do believe it that hate is born of ignorance fear is its father and isolation is its mother so when you put fear and isolation together most of these people who are who are haters have never met the objects of their hate they've never had the opportunity to experience diverse cultures so it's easy for them to point the finger and blame other people and hate them if they've never met them if they've never experienced you know the overwhelming positivity that that Uh, you know, different cultures bring to our American society.
0: That was Christian Picciolini, co-founder of Life After Hate, speaking to our senior political correspondent, Anna Marie Cox. If you'd like to learn more, visit their website, lifeafterhate.org. Before Simone Biles, Ellie Raisman, and the rest of the U.S. women's Olympic team swept gold in Rio and cemented their position as the most dominant force in world gymnastics, Betty Okino was there, paving the way. As part of the 1992 U.S. team, she and her teammates achieved what was previously thought to be impossible, winning a bronze medal at the Barcelona Olympics. This was the United States' best Olympic gymnastics team performance in a fully attended game since 1948. MTV writer Jane Costen spoke to Betty Okina about what it's like to compete under the spotlight at the highest level of sport and how gymnastics has changed over the last 25 years.
2: Hello? Hi,
4: this is Jane Costen from MTV. Hi, Jane. This is Betty. Oh, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I just wanted to say, first of all, um, I've been, I was a huge fan. I remember when you won the uh, McDonald's Cup back in 1991, and I followed your career pretty,
2: pretty closely, so this
4: is very exciting for me.
2: Oh my gosh. <laughs> Way back in the day. <laughs> yeah, no um I actually
4: uh I had a tape of that of that meet and I attempted your uh beam exercise with like the three layouts in my hallway. It didn't it didn't go as well. <laughs> so you were a gymnast. Uh I was. I was at the time. <laughs> so first of all, what's it What's it like, not just this year, but what's it like kind of watching Olympic gymnastics for you, knowing what this is like for a lot of those women out on floor, vault, beam, and bars?
2: Okay, well, it's, a, it's like a cornucopia of emotions. <laughs> I, I always get... Um, it's like every time the Olympics comes around, I'm right back there. I'm back there in the hallway before entering the stadium, and I, I feel the immensity of the experience and trying to calm my nerves. So I can see it in them. I can see, like, the moment they walk in and they just, they're just they feeling it, and then they start doing the work of starting to calm their nerves. So it's, it's, it's a fun experience knowing exactly what they feel like and exactly what it is that they have to do internally in order to keep everything in check and not, you know, totally spaz out on the apparatus. It's just, it's really, it's emotional on so many levels. I think when we're competing, and at the time, you don't really notice, uh, I mean, you can feel how big it is, but you don't really notice or allow yourself to recognize the importance of the event in the same way until afterwards, and especially years afterwards where you get to reflect and you get to watch several different Olympics and you get to see how other people react to it and you get to be in the perspective of the spectator having already been there. Slightly different from the spectator dreaming of going there. The spectator who's already been there, there's like this real depth of appreciation for the uniqueness of that experience.
4: You were part of the first U.S. national team to win an Olympic team medal in a fully intended Games. Can you talk a little bit about what that experience was like and what, what did you, was there a lot of pressure? Was there no pressure? What, how did you feel? Um,
2: well, we felt, a tr- we felt a tremendous amount of pressure to not only medal. It's funny because even though you know, we weren't necessarily thought of like the 92 team as gold medal contenders, USA Gymnastics, and we expected to be fighting for a gold medal, only because the previous world championships, we uh, won the silver medal, and we we're pretty close behind Russia with that silver medal, so we were like, okay, next year, Olympics, we're, we're getting a gold, we're fighting for a gold medal, so earning a bronze medal at that, at that Olympics, um, you know, it's funny to even say this, was uh, a little, felt like a little bit of a failure for us, and like, part of our team was literally crying in the back before we marched out for the medal ceremony because uh, we had gotten a bronze medal and not um, a silver or gold. Mm -hmm. So it was um, mixed emotions. Like the thought of it being the first time that a U.S. team had medaled in a fully attended Olympics didn't process, really. That didn't exist. It was that we had lost a gold medal or a silver medal. That's kind of what was existent there. Obviously, time passed now. um, And the feeling is a little bit different. There's an appreciation for for the experience we had and the medal we did win. But it definitely wasn't, uh, we didn't feel afterwards like, yes, we did it. (laughs) The team of today knows that they're going to win. They're going to not only win, they're going to dominate because there's no other country that is even in range.
4: Do you see, um, you know, do you see a big difference between this era of gymnastics and the gymnastics that you did in kind of early to mid-90s? I do. Um,
2: and I think the biggest, I mean, obvi- others, aside from like the obvious, you know, a different kind of vault. They don't vault over a pommel horse anymore. Right. (laughs) Um, But aside from that, um, I think the biggest difference is it felt like in many ways, uh, like the, the gymnasts, the athletes of the nineties and maybe even the early two thousands, but really the nineties were, um, there was a lot more artistry in the sport and I feel like because of the different co- of, of the, the difference within the code of points back then, there was a, also a lot more um, creativity. Like you saw different routines, different body types doing different routines, but still able to come from a ten 10 where now the code of points is so like skill driven and difficulty driven that you tend to see the athletes pretty much doing the same variations of tricks in their routines. So I feel like a lot of the artistry has gone away and in place is just like trick, trick, power, power. And they're doing some awesome, awesome gymnastics, but, I'd say that's probably the main difference where you kind of tend to see sort of the same thing. And like I watched videos from the 90s and am like, oh, wow, because I'm a choreographer now as well. And so I get some ideas from them and I always notice how unique and different like each of the different routines were because they can pull from so many different elements to get the difficulty they required. And, you know, no two routines really look the same.
4: Do you ever have moments where you feel like I could still do that? Like- totally. And I
2: actually, I had one of those moments recently only because um you know the last several years they have specialists now we didn't have that you had to do all four events you had to be an all-around athlete or else you're not on that olympic team and now you can you can be a bar specialist so like watching now i always think well you know i could probably do (laughs) b because i still play around like on the equipment um so yeah there's definitely several moments where i think okay i can work that code of points so for you, what's the most satisfying part of gymnastics? You know what? The most satisfying part is in competition, overcoming the nerves to perform an epic routine and getting through to the other side. It feel, there's such a great feeling of accomplishment. It's just an awesome feeling of like relief. And I did it. Before you do it, you don't know if you can do it. You don't know if you're going to be, I mean, you know you can do it, but if you're going to be able to, like, keep your nerves in check, keep your body from shaking, you know, keep your mind focused, hit everything, and then once you do it and land, it's almost like a sigh of relief. And it's funny because it's a routine that we do over and over and over, and every day in practice you're hitting 10 for 10 routines, but it's a different scenario once you're up there on that podium (laughs) in competition. It's like this whole other factor. You can't practice it necessarily. You can't practice that level of um, pressure and nerves to that extent. So you never know what's going to happen until it happens.
0: That was MTV's Jane Costen speaking to her childhood idol, Olympic gymnast Betty Okino. If you're a serious fan of Olympic gymnastics and want to listen to these two go real deep, you can check out the entire unedited interview on our iTunes feed. It's there now and you should go take a listen. It's great. To round things off, our poet and resident, Marcus Ellsworth, has some sage words about pronouns he, she, they, and others, and how choosing your pronouns is about self determination.
7: You can't change lead into gold, Z says. The weight of here life hanging heavy in here words. In here hand, Z holds a driver's license, recently updated with a new picture. Here face, almost expressionless, with a hint of anxiety in here eyes. A new license with a new picture, a new address, a new name, and an old M stamped where it should not be. It had taken court orders and doctor's orders to get this far, but they still couldn't sort here the way Z wants to be. Here birth certificate was based on a false assumption made without here consent. How could Z not resent that little letter M that shouldn't be present? One letter that means Z will get called sir by a cop, or a store clerk, or a bouncer at a club. Not every time, but even once is too much, too close to being a threat to here life, should someone feel that Z does not look enough like the he that Z was once forced to be, because we are too hung up on the dichotomy of he and she, the illusion of a binary that doesn't define us, only our love of tradition over humanity. Perhaps this poem has been confusing. That's a result of society refusing to expand our vocabulary to include an h-i-r here for those possessing cells that are neither his nor hers. Or z and e forming z, transforming a once empty space on our tongues into self-determined identity. And we can't even accept people who know that their gender is on the other side of the imaginary wall between the sexes, let alone those for whom the wall doesn't exist. We enforce gender norms more than compassion, and anyone who isn't complying, we act like they're lying, and sometimes, too often, we hurt them. We silence them, and put dead names on their graves to remind his ghost of the she that he never used to be. Or we could start with the courtesy of acknowledging here, and a singular they, and believe in her womanhood, and accept him as a man, and honor those who are neither both and sometimes. It may not have much worth to those who've had their gender affirmed without fail every day since birth, but acceptance can be life-saving. It's all about what we choose to accept and what we choose to change. You can't change lead into gold, Z said, holding here a new license. And with a pushpin, Z scratched out the M.
0: That was MTV News politics writer Marcus Ellsworth. I'm Deputy News and Politics editor Julianne Ross, and this was The Stakes. We're taking a break next week to soak up all this humid air and scorching sun. Just kidding. We'll actually just be in here working away, and in two weeks, Holly Anderson will be back at the helm. Thanks for listening. This episode of The
6: Stakes was produced by Michael Katano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts, and subscribe to this and other MTV Podcasts on iTunes.